Hey, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Dollar Bin Bandits. Uh, I'm Joe Marcello, and I'm joined, as always, with Orrin Phillips. Uh, today, we are absolutely honored and thrilled to have comic book artist and Emmy Award winner, <laughs> Chuck Patton. <laughs> Sir, thank you so much for joining us. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start this off with uh, a question about uh, your your artistry. Uh, I grew up and um, you know going to school and learning about uh, graphic design and art and things of that nature. I'm a video editor by by trade, um, so I read that you are a self taught artist. Is that correct? You know, I, I've got to qualify that, but in reality, yes. Okay. But I do have a degree in art. Okay. <laughs> so, but uh, I mean, I've been drawing since I was um, a toddler, and okay. um, I I would say my major influences have come ninety percent, ninety five percent from sitting down and drawing and drawing and drawing, uh, whether it was in a class and out of class. But okay. it was never someone saying, "Oh, let me teach you this." It's been really pretty much me having to really find it on my own. That was actually going to be one of my next questions is what were your, some of your inspirations, um, you know, whether it be subject matter, artists, what have you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I do tend to go on. So please don't feel bad about. No, that. no, that's fine. <laughs> You're going to edit this later anyway. Um, I mean, I, I mean, the, again, I, I've, it's so funny to be asked these questions and then every time I answer them, I find a new Thing I've either omitted or forgot about, but the one thing that always comes back is, yeah, what what was my influences? And honestly, I have been a comic book fan since being a toddler. Okay, uh, I learned on my literally on my mother's lap on how to read through comic strips, okay. and um, I can even tell you my favorite. I mean, I always Prince Valiant stuck out with me as a child, and always has a, a thing in my heart. Okay. Uh, pictures to color um my mom was into it so it was like you know her reading it i always remember her reading it and like it was fairy tales and also had the, the proverbial fairy tales and the picture books and stuff but comics um i can't even remember my first comic it was just so they were so much they were always around that um they blur so i can't say oh it was superman 2 or <laughs> spider-man 5 or anything like that it was right. um, uh, it was uh, my family. I was blessed that my family uh, were, um, they all read. <laughs> so they all loved comic books. Everybody in the family, with the exception of my dad. My dad was a storyteller. He likes, and that's how I got into movies with, with him. Movies and TV was his thing. Mm -hmm. And with my mom was paperback books and comics. And comic strips, my sisters also kind of augment that. They were the ones who went and bought it my older sisters and then brought it back to me. And so I had comic books literally around me all my life surrounding me. And they didn't buy like one or two books back in the day, just buying 12 books was a lot. You can get a lot for a dollar. <laughs> and uh, my folks, we did, I had everything from love comics to science fiction to horror. And then of course, Supergirls. And of course my favorites were DC. That was the ones I remember more. I mean, I, you will notice my I, decor. <laughs> you will. I'm just 
throwing it out there. Um, the DC so shirt. Just to go to the dark side, though, because you got Thanos's glove and the yellow lantern. Well, you know, I try to grab things off of my shelf that were easy enough. Oh. That kind of, you know. Oh. Oh. I also have, I have, you know, other stuff here. I have a Harley Quinn thing. I, this oh. is, I made that for my daughter for Halloween one year. So, uh, yeah, we, this is a DC house. Okay. Will you rest my case? Because that's edgy, man. <laughs> I don't see heroic stuff. Up. Okay, you got a picture of Superman. But oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is cool. This is great. I mean, I, I am blessed. I, I tell a lot of guys, you know, now I'm getting, now that I am older, I'm not as older as some of the August legends I've met and known. Um, and I won't say their names because you can interview them on their own time. But, you know, it's like the cool thing about where we are now, when you get away from the snobby shit, is that all those things behind you were, are, it's almost like we're now reaping the benefits of breaking into the pyramid, and now we can have those treasures around us. The idea that you have a Harley Quinn ha- a hammer and Thanos's glove and a yellow lantern, you know, at 10 years old, I would probably have killed you for those. <laughs> I mean, those are things that we would have loved to have had. I mean, I, I, being, I had a, a ring stolen from, I had a, um, there was no cartoon called uh, um, Hercules, mm-hmm. and he had a magic ring. And uh, those who know animation, know it's a corny, it's a great corny series. Um, it, it's so famous. Bruce Tim basically used the style of the Hercules character to build his Batman show and Superman show. Oh, really? So, uh, well, Superman in particular, but uh, but they used to have a magic ring because he would take a ring out because it was a superhero cartoon show. Okay. And so getting that ring was prized. You couldn't get it anywhere. I think we had to go to Canada to get it. And um, and I got into a fight with a kid on the street. I had to be like nine or eight, maybe seven. And lost that ring. And man, you thought you shot my dog. Yeah. I didn't have a dog. Those wonderful accoutrements around us is so important. Yeah. Oh, I, and it, this is getting off the topic, but so... The reason why I have this stuff, other than being a comic book fan, I mean, if I were to turn this computer around and you were to see my shelves, I have a Green Lantern. I have numerous Superman statues, Green Lantern statues, a couple of sets of the Green Lantern rings. But my the reason for doing this is so I years ago when I out of college, I uh, interviewed at D.C. a couple of times and being in their offices in uh, I was one of like the licensing people uh, oh. was sitting in their office and it was just lined with all this stuff. And I was like, this is amazing. This really, I'm going to get to a point, whether I'm in this business or not, where I'm going to have this stuff. <laughs> and my wife, when she married me, you know, yeah. I told her like, look, this is what you need to know. Like, this is, you need to know what you're getting into. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so, you know, she was like, okay, you know, <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't, I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I drink a little bit and like anyone else, but this is pretty much my, uh, my addiction. So and I'm sure she is blessed that she's got that instead of that crazy truck driver who's on meth. who's you know, got. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> he was cute though. <laughs> he was a nice guy, but I think she, she cringes every time the Amazon truck pulls up. So <laughs> yeah, that's now become the symbol of doom. Yeah. Oh, She's God. like, oh God, what is it? And meanwhile, I'm at the window going, yay. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have not totally indulged in that yet, but um, actually it has started because a buddy gave me as a, a present uh, Amazon gift card. 
Oh, yeah. I finally splurged it. I, I actually, it took me months. I kept losing it. He kept sending it to me. That's how messed <laughs> up I was. And then I finally found something because he was like, buy it on anything. Go on Amazon. You're going to go crazy. And that's, that's a fear of mine, losing that control. So I finally, okay, go, go for something practical. Go for something. Yeah. And I'm getting this seat cushion because, you know, us artists, we sit in these damn chairs forever. Yeah. We're all like MODOK, you know? Yep. So, it's like, so I'm like, I need something to make my MODOK this better. And I saw this this special uh, cushion. I'm like, I'm, I'm getting that. And I'm, I'm laughing because they said it's going to take a week to get here. And I have heard people do this. And now I find myself doing it. When the truck comes up, I'm going, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Yo, this, is, this is it. Oh, my God. It's pathetic. I feel. I, no, I, it's not I pathetic. i legion of Amazon, want, you know, shoppers now. It's not so, pathetic at all. It's so not. I veered completely away from the question you asked me. No, you, you answered the question. I just added my own uh, twist oh, to no it. No worries. This is great. I love it. It's, 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 it's got a rhythm of its own. It'll go where we want it to go. <laughs> I want to know. Yes, sir. You're, uh, you're a big DC Comics fan. You're a young man. You walk into DC headquarters. What's going through your mind? I'm doomed. They'll never let me stay here. <laughs> you're going to think I'm the janitor. <laughs> Some shit like that. Actually, you know, it's funny. I, I that came out the top of my head because that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> I came in there, um, and and or, or thank you. I see a Chuck Patton comic cover. That's not my cover. It's Torres on it, but yeah, three of uh, as, you know, that's sweet because those are um, um, those are really significant books for me. Those three yeah. books, um, especially the one behind it. But that's okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll change it for you. No, 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 don't do no, no, no. Oh, not that one. No, not that one. <laughs> that one. There you go. Because I think, let me get my my lie together. <laughs> that was my first official cover. Okay. And it was so significant because one, it was my first cover. That technically would have been my first JLA story. Okay. It got shelved for a year and a half. <laughs> so that series that we started had to be shoved back. And then Jerry went on a kind of sabbatical and then I had to do all these other books. So it's ironic that that didn't come up until five books later. Okay. Where we went back into the Beastman series. And then I got to do the cover. And um, that's a big deal because nervous, nerve wracking. And on top of all that, Dick Giordano inked it, who is my all-time favorite. He was my favorite. That was a weird thing. He was my favorite inker and presence that I learned as a fan in comics. This is the guy to go talk to long before he became really my mentor, the guy who brought me into the business. I wouldn't have been there without him. So to answer your question, how I, I mean, it was traumatic enough to get to DC, right? but it was even more important to know that, um, that man brought me in literally. And well, tell us a little bit about that relationship between you and him. It's weird. I mean, everybody talks. There's certain guys in the business whose names would pop up, and they'll automatically go one of the greatest guys, one of the nicest guys in the business. Um, uh, sweetheart, despite themselves, mm-hmm. uh, the other one. Uh, his name pops up, Giordano, and also Archie Goodwin. Right. Archie Goodwin was an amazing, incredible gentleman. Amazing artist, writer. Um, never given enough credit. To me, watching him and listening to him and seeing the guys who worked with him 
really showed you the power of what a real editor does. Right. Um, and not to say that that, that also, uh, that doesn't deflate other great editors, in particular, another guy who I owe my career with, um, Lynn Wien right. and Mark Wolfman. Um, those are guys who I, again, I wouldn't be anywhere with. Uh, but, um, but those, I mean, Archie was amazing. Dick was amazing. Mm-hmm. was uh, just a, a, he was like a talent magnet. He just knew, he saw something, his gut told him to bring him in, he'd bring you in. Right. And he will get as much as he could hands-on with you. But the most important thing is he was important to get you through the door. So that feeling I went through the door was up until the day I left, never feeling like, did I belong here? Dick was constantly like, shut up, you belong here. I got you in, you're in. Once you're in, you're in, <laughs> you know, right. it's up to you to stay, but you're in. So stop thinking you're not, this is no joke. you got a job. Right. And, um, and, and not in a harsh way either. He was, again, he was a sweetheart, but, um, how I got it was ironic. It was, um, God, this is sorry. I repeat so much. I'm trying to get the, the short version of it. Um, there was a program that Dick was going to institute. I don't know. Dick was going, I, I know he decided to spearhead it, really push it called the new talent showcase eventually going to call it the showcase and he was very verbal about i want to bring new people in and not just young but people who he thought never get that big shot so it wound up being young guys you know i think i was 22 at the time um which i thought honestly it's funny you go young guy i thought i was over the hill (laughs) until i was explained by another living legend why how stupid that was but i'll get to that Uh, but uh uh, so it was a bunch of us. He brought in about, he had planned, I think 20 people to come into the DC offices once a week. And he will give us not only like a classroom assignments, kind of, first he'll kind of like a lecture, well, not even a lecture, but more or less show you the ropes. Cause it was never, it was never like a classroom. It felt like a, it was like a bullpen and training. And we would get these assignments and he would talk about certain things that he would do or other people would do. And then what we're expected to do, which I think was really important for young artists to hear. What are your, you know, when you're doing these stories, what are you expected to do? Now, some guys came in like me, which is sort of like, I don't know nothing. I'm an open book. I'm an open, I'm an empty cup, tell me. And then there were certain people who came in who were just cocking a walk and they already thought they had the job. And it was just a matter of them waiting for somebody to give them an assignment. Um, I always remember this one guy because he was Mr. You know, well, you know, I don't really need this, but I want to do it. And, you know, my family has put me up for this. And I remember Dick saying, was there anything you want from me? Uh, Is there any advice I can give you? And he thought, I don't know if he thought he was being funny. It annoyed me to this day. 30 something years later, I keep thinking about this guy going, you insufferable little prick. Um, (laughs) He was there and he he goes, well, I got this double eagle. He got something. It was either uh, what it was, was his grandma gave him something like a a bond and he wondered how he can spend it. Now I'm sitting here thinking I had less than a hundred dollars in my pocket when I left to come to New York. I didn't know anybody. I literally knew no one. Um, I had a, I met a guy, a young guy who put me up in his living room. I slept on his living room floor. I had no job. 
I just left whatever friends I had. I actually moved to Boston to get to New York. And I had a regular paying job as a, a, a poster framer. Um, and uh, one of the, in the uh, Harvard Square's leading um, department store, which is ironic because we we're, it was like match. <laughs> it's like all these people who to this day, uh, I even have contact to, or there's one I'm even um, very close to. Uh, and uh, I met them all through that. Anyway, I, I was thinking about all this and here's this guy who's like, oh yeah, I got money and I'm just doing this because it's a lark. And, you know, and, you know, sure enough, the little bastard got work and, you know, some people put him on a certain pedestal. I won't say his name. Oh, <laughs> like I said, he'll find his own way into a podcast. <laughs> I just remember how arrogant that was. Yeah. Those of us who our life was, this was the life I had imagined since I was a child. I had no idea how to make comics. I had sent a letter to Stan Lee in exactly 1966. It was, I won't say I was my age, but I was a kid. I have to do is look up, read a Wikipedia, figure it out. But I sent him a letter asking how comics were made, never thinking to get a letter back. This is one of those career day things where the teachers make you send a letter to, you want to be an astronaut? Oh, yeah. I said, an you want to be a fireman? So I sent it to Stan Lee because he was the only name I knew. Uh, comics and I was a nut for Thor and Fantastic Four so I sent him a letter in my little scrawl hand inspected nothing three weeks later it shouldn't have been that long I don't think it took that long but let's say within two to three weeks I get a letter that my mother was freaking out because she was like it says Marvel Comics what did you do what did you do (laughs) (laughs) what did you do so we opened it up, big family thing, and it's from Stan Lee. Now, bless Stan, he may have, it definitely was a form letter, but the son of a bitch sent me eight pages breaking down the process of making a comic. And Stan, wow. so it was like, hey, true believer, I'm glad you want to be a comic book artist, and this is a great, stupendous job to have, and you have to draw it this way. This is what I expect. Now, when I go to Jack Kirby, this is how we do it. And he literally broke down the process from plot in his Stan Lee way. Now, I didn't know his voice, so now I can do it because I've been around the guy. But it cracks me up now because, wow, he raised just the way he sounds. And uh, he went from breaking down the comic um, from um, story story to drawing, um, you know, pencils to inks, lettering, coloring. Even down to the printing. <laughs> He's telling you, when it goes to the printing press and it comes out, it's spanking new and we put it high on into your little hands from the news, newsstand. I've never been in a newsstand in my life. I'm from Detroit. We used to get our comics from the, uh, uh, it was a uh, pharmacy store kind of restaurant diner. And they had the old spinner racks up. So, mm-hmm. newsstand, sure. I've seen those in movies. Anyway, but Stan did sign it. In his own, he, he obviously asked somebody to type this up and he signed it. And I held on to that thing for 20 years. It had the um, Marvel characters. I, somebody put it up on Facebook recently. I was going to grab it and say, this thing is, is like, was, was like the Indian, this was like the scrolls, you know, um, <laughs> because it was the Marvel masthead and he had all the characters along the edge and you just type it in. And then he, you know, he wrote, I don't know if he did it in a crack. I just remember my father going, he's got a big handwriting because he just, <laughs> you know, 
But I, my mother was so floored because she always worried that this obsession, this obsession about comics, because I, I was really serious. I wanted to be a comic artist. One, you know, we didn't have black people doing this. This wasn't, I'm going to go, I'm going to go political now. I'm going to go mm-hmm. real, real, more in political, real. There was no, nobody, no dark person standing up at that time saying, hey, I'm a comic book artist. And, um, and DC was not really good about telling who was drawing the books. You just got used to, after reading 50 of them, you knew Kurt Schaffenberg. I think Schaffenberg was one of the few that I remember his name was on there. And later on, they started giving you credits. But um, you didn't know who they were. And here was Stan, who was at least talking to you one-on-one. And he would call out people. But again, there was still no hint of who they were, unless you get one of those rare pages that goes, well, I, I had, uh, I had uh, jumping Johnny Romita draw these faces. And you know, he's drawing, he's doing caricatures of people. But so she was worried that I was having an unrealistic expectation that I can go somewhere with. And she held it back and held it back, but she was, she was old school. She was like, I don't know how you're going to do this. So I want you to find and have a career where I know you're going to be taken care of. But this thing about being an artist, I don't know. And then this letter came and showed her everything that, listen, if they're willing, if, if somebody up there was willing to send him a letter and inspire him, then who, who am I to get in the way? So she stopped. She started buying me real, when she they were starting to buy me supplies. They didn't know what to buy because my family wasn't artistic. Um, I won't even go into my family dynamics, but let's say I have, I've been lucky to be raised in two families. And in my natural family, there's a, a tremendous amount of talent that um, very few of them went professional. I'm the only one that really went professional with it. And in my foster family I was raised in are good meat and potatoes people. They weren't into, into that, but they were readers. So that was the blessing that, you know, they had, a really, yeah, it was a really interesting. So this is my foster family I'm talking about who raised me. And like I said, my mom, she wanted me just to have an opportunity. So when she saw that letter, she said, he's got a chance. I'm not going to get in his way. So she did her research and found out I needed a certain type of paper. I used to draw on lined notebook paper. <laughs> I thought that was normal. You know, I used to draw on paper bags and we didn't know it was always around. So I was like, Oh, I'm drawing that. You know? well, yeah. yeah, I'm a kid. I don't care. I got my crayons. I'm going. Um, and so later as they realized, you know, especially when I started going to school and the school was pointing out, he's an artist. He won't stop drawing. He won't do this. He starts drawing here <laughs> and he's good. And the kids are paying attention or, or they're tearing up his work. You know, that was always a sign too. I realized the more they tore up your work, the better you were. You know, I didn't realize that at the time. Now, if I went back in time, I was like, kids, you're going to do really good. You know, <laughs> I don't tear up your work. <laughs> you redraw something else. And um, but uh, that really made an impression on the family. And even though the fear was there, like, you're not going to get anywhere. Nobody in my family said it. They didn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it, even though, you know, the reality was probably there. Uh, but they saw the talent and they also knew, well, we did good in music. We've done good in sports. Why can't he do good in art? You know? um, so I, I bless my folks for, for doing that, for taking that risk and not browbeat me into, I mean, I remember my father once said, I want you to be a policeman. And I went and get shot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we were watching TV. 
You're a great policeman. You know, I'm like, yeah, but I'd rather draw the policeman. <laughs> he was like, what are you with that? You know, so. I think both Orn and I went through that same thing with our with our fathers. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, my everything about because I mean, you know, Orn, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, we went like uh career-wise, we have gone through similar uh tribulations in that, you know, you kind of reach a point where you go through a funk, unless you're, you know, ridiculously successful, but you know, trying to find your way. And uh, you know, my father was like, Well, have you tried the uh police force? Take the uh the exam. I'm like, okay. So I took it and, you know, I passed or did whatever I had to do to get to the next level. So then I was training for the physical uh, fitness portion of it. And the day before I was going to take that, I, I got a job doing uh, exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so I just, yeah, I screwed off on that. I was just, you know, I think I told my dad, yeah, I took the test. It was, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Oof. But I did it. And, you know, of course I, you know, I had the new, that new job and it never really came up in conversation after that. So, but yeah, um, I'm glad I never did that. You know, it's funny about that. Cause I later um, jump ahead later when I got my first job and my first comic job. And um, like I said, that was a trauma story all by itself, too. But I, I went back home and I didn't know I had like less than. Um, well, I didn't I didn't get it. Did I get me try to figure it out? My dad, my, my foster dad didn't last very long. My foster mom died when I was in high school. So she never even saw me go through college. I get through mm-hmm. college. I get to the degree and I didn't even go into college for art, by the way. I went into journalism because mom wanted me to be a writer. You know, dad may wanted me to be a cop, but mm. mom wanted me to be a writer. And so I compromised, became a journalist and was doing fairly well. I never thought I was fairly well. I just followed it. I liked it. I liked the structure of writing because that's why I realized what I really wanted to do was write. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have the opportunity of uh, a creative writing program until I got to college. So again, the self-taught came through where I had to, looking at people that I liked and followed what they did but tried to follow and copy what they did I worked in comics so I tried it with writing I didn't feel the confidence to do as much but in journalism it was easy because it was just mm-hmm. people what you saw but anyway um, so my father got to see that but it wasn't until I finally went to New York and got the nod from Dick I had to go meet him and um, Dick was like it was funny. I remember, well, okay, I'm, I'm getting stories mixed up, but let's say, stick with my dad. Um, when I finally told him, I'm going to New York to be a comic artist, and he went, I was never, never, ever, unsure. I knew you were going to do that anyway. That was his point. Okay. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm going to fail because that ain't going to happen. <laughs> I'm like, well, why? Because that's not going to happen because you've been doing this since you were five. <laughs> so you're not going to fail. And then he died shortly after that. Um, so he never got to see my first book. Oh, but he knew I got there. And that's a big thing for me. That he right. never doubted. That was his point. Never doubted. That's no great. What I went through with that. He never doubted. That's never. great. Not at all. Even story. I, I always felt he trained me to tell stories. Because since I was a child, I would sit and just talk with him. And he would tell me his experiences. 
and we'll talk about what we just saw. And he'll break down things he saw. And um, he loved movies. He loved, he loved genre movies. Um, uh, Westerns was huge with him. Science fiction was huge with him. So we would talk about the reactions of what we got from things. And uh, I always remember the first time we saw the um, Night of the Living Dead again. I had saw it earlier, and then we watched it again on television. And he was like, see, that story. <laughs> and that's how I knew he was going to tell me something. Because it was like his reaction to it, and then what he got from behind the scenes of it, and how powerful that was, that, that series, that movie. Mm-hmm. And years later, when I got to, I didn't get to meet George Romero, but I was in a convention with him. I was still, I was in high school. Um, my first comic convention, he was there. And I just saw the crazies. And that's oh, yeah. analyzing stories. And he was shocked. He asked the people in the crowd who's seen the crazies. None of them did. My hand went up. And he was like, you saw the crazies? I'm like, oh, yeah. It scared the hell out of me. And I really got the whole biohazard thing. And as soon as I said it, he goes, you're, you're a smart kid. This is good. <laughs> you know? I got a little nod from George Romero, which was a big deal. That's um, But um, I'm probably getting my stories mixed up now. <laughs> but... Getty. That's cool. You saw you met George Romero, so yeah, Romero. Uh, the, the, so Dick was putting up this um, a new talent. So he puts call out for people to send their stuff to him. There was a guy in Boston, another one of these people who I'm not going to talk to. I'm not going to give names because I'm not going to give him any kind of fame. <laughs> he decided he was going to be like an agent because he he was he did get some work from DC, an artist, and he was like top of the fanboy art guys in Boston kind of thing. Everybody kind of looked at him as a little Mr. Authority. Um, so he decided he was going to rep some people. In other words, going to take their portfolios up to Dick because he was in Dick's class. He, he kind of got in there. He also got into the Seamus thing. Um, let's just say I don't think he was as good as that, <laughs> but you know, he got in there. Good for him. He had more than I had. So, um, he was supposed to go and tell us if we were good enough. Uh, tell it to Dick, and Dick would tell him, "Yeah, let me have this guy. Let me have this guy." So when it came down to me, he goes, "No, you, you, you didn't make it." And I remember drawing something. I can't remember what I drew. I want to say I drew this comics journal was taking fan art too. They would like if you wanted to get your stuff in there, you send them some art, and they like it, they'll publish it. And I remember doing a Superman versus Alien. Which oh, I really seeing a letter from them saying this is too preposterous, it will never happen. <laughs> Believe me, I wish I could go back in time and cram Kevin Nolan's Superman and old alien up their ass. <laughs> oh my god, this happened, motherfuckers! Yeah, but, uh, oh, there I, I broke the rule right there. <laughs> no, no rules, no rules. I would, if there's a way to go back in time and just send people space and manure, I would be the first. I have a tour bus. You know? The tour bus in time to go back and shove people's faces and shit. Um, that would have been one. So they didn't like that one, but the one they did like that I did, and I meticulously went crazy over it, trying to get it right, because I was a huge Gil Kane fan, um, among many other people, um, was a John Carter of Mars illustration. And they took that one. So I was feeling kind of confident, not cocky. I never felt cocky. No matter, even when if I had won at art awards, I always felt like I got one over. I never had that super confidence that that young man I was telling you about who came in the door going, oh, it's just going to be a matter of time if I work at DC and Marvel. And sure enough, he did. 
me, it always felt like if they saw how bad I was, really, they're never going to give me that shot. And every time my brain went there, I got the shot. So I, you would think I would have learned from that. But no, I always think that was like my defense mechanism. So this is another one where, okay, John, Comics Journal took one of my two drawings. So I'm waiting for them to publish it. And now this guy's taking myself with the Dick Giordano and everyone's like, going, oh man, you're a shoo-in, you're a shoo-in. And then he comes back and of all the 10 people he brought up there, I'm the guy that's not going to get it. And I was crushed, but I was man enough to go, okay, that means I have to go back and work harder. I, then I started regretting that I didn't go to art school. I went to journalism school. I didn't take those art courses. I even had a chance to take the famous art course, but I didn't want my folks to try to pay the money out for it because it was enormous. But it would have been helpful giving me a heads up of what I needed to. You know, that was the other thing. I was asking them, what did Dick say? And he wasn't specific. He wouldn't give me specifics like, okay, does he draw heads too big? There's not no perspective. He didn't tell me that. He just goes, you weren't, you didn't make the cut. Um, I had a friend who was a budding, now a somewhat well-known science fiction writer. At the time, he was kind of, he was doing a lot of good storyboard, a, a story, uh, short story. So he was getting known, but he wasn't a known author yet. Uh, he used to run um, one of the big comic book stores in Boston called Linear Picnic. He was one of the managers. He's a good, 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 good friend. And um, he got incensed when he heard that. Heard me come in and say, yeah, the guy said I wasn't good enough. Bullshit. Bull fucking shit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. So he, because he knew some of these guys from behind the scenes, DC always had a real interesting connection with science fiction. Because a lot of their writers were science fiction authors. So if you knew one guy who knew one guy, all of them basically knew the back door into DC. He basically did that. I remember sitting in his in, at the store, him getting on his Black and Gizzle book out, caught one guy who knew one guy, and then we wind up calling... Um, someone in D.C. who just said, I'll just put you straight to Dick because Dick just likes to talk to people. Now, no one else would do that shit. That was the other thing about Giordano. You want to talk to Giordano, you talk to Giordano. He'll talk to you. If he can't talk to you, he'll say he can't talk to you. He'll open the door. Even to tell you, I can't talk to you, and hang up. (laughs) So by three in the afternoon, a week after I got turned down, I'm calling Dick Giordano. He's on the phone. And I get two words out, like, my name's Chuck Padden. I sent my work up with this fella. And he goes, oh, where are you now? He goes, I'm Boston. Well, you know, we're going to start up in four months. Like, yeah, but, but no, can you get here in four months? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'll get a spot for you. You get here in four months. My friend's going, yeah, motherfucker, yeah. <laughs> I'm stunned because I've been told that I wasn't good enough. Now, here's Dick going, we're going to make a spot for you. You just got to get here in four months. That's awesome. Wow. So I did. I saved my hundred bucks up. I met somebody who knew somebody who they let me stay in their kitchen week, which meant I had to leave this house. So I stocked my money. I said, F you to the guy who screwed me over. In fact, I didn't even tell him, Hey, I'm going to the class now. Yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't even going to be at the class, by the way. I don't I, I forgot. Oh yeah. Cause he had gotten assignments and now he was a pro. So, um, <laughs> this was beneath him, but, um, Long story short, within, I don't think it was four, it was actually six months, because I remember busting my ass and drawing and drawing, and that feeling of, this can't actually happen. He actually said, come. He didn't have any art. He didn't go into, you can't draw, you can't do this. He just said, no, I know who you are. I saw your work. You need to come in. Which said to me, what did the other guys say or do? What did, and my friend went, honestly, this is your first step since he was a kind of like my, my short story writer friend. 
he has been through this kind of stuff and went, look, you're going to come to business where there's going to be people who are going to put you down and make themselves good. This is one of those situations. It didn't work. So now you got a chance to take advantage of that. So from here on, just be careful. Just know that, you know, this can happen. And so I remember making it to New York, going to that class. There's 20 of us. And sure enough, Dick's like, Patton, you sit over there. And then I was in. And once a week, usually on a Wednesday, he would spend two hours. This, by this time, he went from being group editor or editor on a few books to group editor to all of a sudden head Um, And he still made the time. As well as inked every freaking cover for DC. Wow. <laughs> Which I have no idea how the man did it. I really don't. To this day, I don't. <laughs> I don't. It's amazing. Uh, I felt grateful and fortunate every time he wanted to do anything with me. Even when he gave me critiques later, he, I would get these critiques out of nowhere. And it's like, tell me more. I can't. Here, just take this and run. And um, it was never a put down. It was him just trying to get me better, make me feel confident, make me keep going. He felt, look, if I brought you here, then you're good enough. Right. And I never looked back from that. Never had a day where I didn't have to you know, I could, I can, I mean, I walk up to DC's and uh, sit, sit at Lance Wien's uh, desk and talk to him. Um, now that was a little later after the, after the actual course. It's funny how time blurs. I don't know how long that course went, but I know that I went from no job to having a job. I took a framer's job um, to, to stay in New York, finally got an apartment. Um, well, actually, yeah, I finally got a, a, a became a roommate to someone. Um, and so now I had a base, I had some money, but I also, my, you know, I was up all night drawing comics, trying to learn the lesson that Dick would give us. Um, we didn't get real assignments. That was the thing is that down the line, it became important that the publishers are going to, um, actually do a new case, a showcase book. It was going to be an actual book. So that's where we're all kind of like hungry for, Ooh, you, you can either bring your own character in or not, or, you know, but you weren't going to be given a regular assignment. That would come if you're good enough. And all of a sudden, certain guys got pulled out because they were good enough. That's the positive news. The negative news was, we started with 20. We dropped down to maybe 10 to 8 people because some people just couldn't cut it for some reason or another. And Dick would walk them out, and it was a walk of doom. It wasn't a walk of shame, but it was a walk of doom. You just knew, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, you're just never going to get it. And he wasn't cruel that way. He just, it was just real. If you had to have a real job and you knew you weren't going to get an assignment, um, you have to go take care of yourself. So you may have to leave. So some guys left because they had to get real money in real life. Some of them actually got work from Marvel before they got work from D.C., so I was still in there. And again, I, I thought I was the worst guy in class, but Dick would take me apart. Which is always, yeah. he, he would use something that to this day I use. Um, he would take an artist and say myself and go, Patton, you went out of your way to be boring. <laughs> <laughs> which really stuck with me. To this day, I would yell at an artist, you know what? You went out of your way to be boring. And then I would proceed to show him just like he'd show me what I did to do wrong. And uh, I got so used to that. Oh, God, what did I do now? And, uh, and um, this went on for a while. That guy I was telling you about, he went on and got work at Marvel. 
Um, so he was now Mr. You know, ooh, look at me, I'm a pro. And <laughs> other people. Jandra Seema was <laughs> class, and she was being groomed right away for Ariane. So that she was like one of those success stories. Um, we'll fun to see her stuff. I also knew with her and several other people, they came out of the Kubrick school. So they were already like, they had to me a curriculum in my head. They're already like trained by a professional. You know? um, I'm coming out of looking at comic books and drawing it on my own. Even when I had my degree in art, uh, I had a degree in commercial art. Commercial art in the eighties was a joke, you know? Um, so it wasn't, I really wanted illustration, didn't have that. So again, everything I learned was from comics and Dick knew it. And he didn't, again, didn't shame me. He just wanted me to look at, okay, you're looking at that. Now see what this, why this works and why this isn't working. So one day, one of those big tarahs where I thought, oh shit, I'm not going to make it. He, and it was just at the beginning of the class. He stops and goes, Patton, come with me. And we start going out the door of the Walk of Doom. Like, oh shit, wow. I screwed up that bad, you know? And now I realize, wait a minute, I'm going the opposite direction as the front door. Because that was a cool thing. Going into D.C. was like, oh, in the 80s, back when it was on um, behind the Radio City Music building. And, oh, okay. Oh, it's like, here we are, these scruffy artists and coming past these things. <laughs> and you go to the main lobby and it was like, do you see comics? You know, it's so cool. <laughs> and you can walk through the doors and they look at you like, look, it's like a little class coming in from high school, you know? <laughs> Uh, and then we'll leave afterwards and get drunk and have hamburgers and talk about how great it would be if we can walk through the door like real professionals. <laughs> so anyway, I'm being walked through, and I'm like, oh shit, am I going through the back door? He's going to kick me out the back door? Is there a back door? Taking <laughs> me through the inner offices. I've never been there. We've never gone past his front office. Front office. So now I'm in the back offices, and he goes through a door, hits it, opens it, and in there is Lynn Wing, Marv Wolfman, and George Perez. The Illuminati. I was going to say. <laughs> and since I've seen pictures of them, I know who they are. I said, like, oh, fuck. He's going to have all three of them chew me out. <laughs> so he goes, here he is. I got to go. Pushes me in. I'm with them. Lynn comes up and goes, Dick tells me you're like the fastest guy in this group. I'm like, fast? <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, you can do like this and this and this and you're like, you're like his sponge. I'm like, I am? <laughs> he goes, yeah. And Mario goes, I heard a lot of great things about you. Good luck. <laughs> Shakes my hand. George goes, you're doing good. I saw it. I'm like, what, what, what? Jeez. I didn't realize I'm getting my first assignment. And um, then goes, so what do you know about Gene Day? And I goes, oh, he's a Canadian artist. He's really good. He's been around. Wow, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell me what you really think. Okay, he's really relying on photographs. My fanboy took over, you know. He really, I mean, I like when he draws him, but when he starts just using photo reference, I was always Mr. Photo Reference. I believe you got to draw like Jack, you know. You got to get there. From the mind, yeah. Yeah, so I just went off fanboy on him. He's just sitting there stroking his beard. Like, That's good. I like that. That's good. That's pretty good. Well, you know, he died today. I'm like, oh, oh jeez. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. I heard he, you know, he got, he got, he got. There was a rumor he died at his drawing table, which was disgusting. It really wasn't. He actually got killed by a car accident. But you know, it's, 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 it's I was gonna say it's Hollywood to make it much more dramatic. Right. Saying he died at the drawing table drawing this book. 
In fact, I think that's why I said that because then was like, yeah, I think he died at the at the drawing table. So I'm like, oh my god, even further, you know. And that's a long way to go. And he goes, yeah, but you know, we had a book lined up for him, and now that he's gone, I need someone to take it over, take it, uh, pick it up. And um, how fast are you? I'm like, I I don't know. Because <laughs> well, you got two weeks to draw this Brave and a Bow story. We draw that, and we, I want to talk to you about a, a series that we want you to take over. Because the artist son is getting tired, and he's got a better opportunity on another big book, so we need someone to step in. I want to bring in a newcomer. Because, um, you know, we think it's, it's time for new blood. So you got to do good on this book. And it's Brave and Abode. It's a karate kid. He, I know who these people are. <laughs> it's Batman. It's karate kid from the 23rd century, or whatever century. Yeah, 23rd. Mm-hmm. And um, it's Mike W. Barr. I'm picking. I'm just taking the book from scratch. Because Gene, whatever Gene did, I don't think he did enough for anybody. Because I thought they wanted me to just draw over him. But no, you draw from scratch. You're gonna, and that was my first assignment. That was actually one of the questions I had for you. And I ask everyone that we've had on this, but and it, you've answered it pretty much. But <laughs> you, you know, like uh, when know. when you know you're brought in as an artist. Yeah. Are you given any direction as to this is how we want this particular? Oh yeah, that was another comic book tattoo I have. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nice. Are you ever given direction as to well, this is how we want so and so to look, or they know you, they know your style, and they pretty much just say, "Okay, do your thing." At the time, it's it's a little of this and a little of that. Most of the time, it's do your thing. Okay. I thought it was really cool. But it depends on who the writer was, because that, that JLA, um, JSA, JLA, um, uh, which which was kind of cool, because it's like I, mean, I was again, JLA was my book. So I knew the JLA, JSA team up was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I am coming in doing it. And Roy Thomas is writing it. And it's Roy Thomas, Roy the boy. And uh, this is when he had left Marvel. So he's in his DC exodus. Now, I loved everything Roy did at Marvel. Wasn't a big fan of the stuff he was doing at DC, but mm-hmm. that's okay. Um, because he was more, it was like he, his, he really, his fanboy came out where he's more of a comic historian. Right. So a lot of really finite details about, let's say, Doll Man. <laughs> Something that most was like, okay, he's six inches tall and he wears a cape and he rides a dog. No, you got to get into those. You know, the way his hair was and other, and I didn't care. So, and I'm using that as an example because actually the character that I was having problems with him was, uh, well, the first one was the Flash because he was really insistent that he had to have the golden age version of the boat coming from the belt. And I'm like, well, why can't he just wear the way, you know, Mike Sikowski drew it, which was just there. No, I don't want that. I don't want, I want it, you know. So this kind of, that kind of attention that I was kind of feeling antsy about because, you know, sometimes the stuff looked great in the 40s and necessarily means it's going to look good now. Mm-hmm. And so that was a kind of a fun and difficult book to draw, that particular. But, uh, and that was the only time I remember having a writer really go at me about why well, I want this. And it was really about details. It wasn't about layouts. Right. I, I kind of wanted that. But you also learn quickly that some of the writers being felt, very few of them really kind of got art. So they would say something, you go, that doesn't make sense because you just flopped the camera or you did this or you did that. 
Uh, even on that Raven boat, Mike had wrote a passage that I remember going to Lynn, going, Lynn, I don't know what to do. And he goes, will you tell me what you think? What do you think? And, and again, bless Lynn for treat. I learned more about critical editing, thinking, writing from Lynn by going back and forth with him than any other writer that I ever worked with. I mean, and, and that's even lessons I learned from him I've been taking into animation about editing and, and, and story interpretation. Mike had wrote a scene where this terrorist woman is being in a, as he calls it, a bulletproof seat. It was a see-through bulletproof cell that was impenetrable. So impenetrable that it was, um, it was, he said, he specifically said it was like three inch thick walls. And I'm like, how the hell do you draw that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> he literally wow. and, and I'm like, okay, so I had to put my thinking cap on and go, all right, art direct this. It can't be a cinema, it can't be a concrete room because it makes no sense. How are you going to see her? We can put a camera in there, but you know, the whole point was that she's supposed to be so dangerous they want to keep their eyes on it. So I made it a literally translucent cube. And then went, you saw it, see? That's how you do it. Because the writers don't care. They know they just write words and you got to make those words come to life. So I started feeling more confident about saying, that doesn't make sense to me. I knew we were in trouble when I was getting clashes with certain writers and they would want something that goes, that doesn't work visually. And if I draw it the way you want it, I would do it, but it's going to be boring. And sometimes I had to go that way. And I found later that whenever I acquiesce, whenever I have not asserted myself with it, I know the work is not going to be satisfied. Yeah, I just want to know, because you jump in to JLA. Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, Roy Thomas, uh, Conway was on his way out. Right. Internally, what was the thought, DC, as far as where JLA was wow. in its history <laughs> and where they wanted to go? Because I know, you know, they wanted to freshen it up a bit. But yeah. what were some of the th things you were hearing backstage about JLA? It's crazy. You know, JLA to the fan was, well, depending on which fan you're talking to, but um, they we knew that it's one of the oldest books in D.C. It's the flagship book because it had everybody's character in it. And that was really the problem. That really was the problem. It wasn't so much that it was, I mean, Lynn knew that whoever wrote it and drew it, I mean, he wrote it for several years. Jerry wrote it for several years. I think Jerry probably became the longest running writer on the series. And, you know, George did a stint on it. And of course, Dick, um, oh, geez, Dick Dillon, mm -hmm. Sikowski. I was from the Sikowski era. That was a guy who I came in on and I loved it. Loved his work. Uh, I loved his crew. We used to joke, some of us to joke, I say, Sikowski's so like DC's Kirby without the gravitas, without the, without the gravitas. Without, but he drew almost everything from romance to Westerns. And they all did, actually. Everybody did. But so at that time, Justice League was still respected, but it wasn't the top book. The top book was Titans. And in fact, when I came in at the meet Lynn for the first time with Marvin and George, they were going over on the Titans books. I was hearing rumbles about it because I what I would at that point I had jumped back to Marvel books. So I didn't read as many DC. Um, I had stopped reading Justice League around the time when George took over. Um, Dick Dillon was always a tough one because I loved and I loved Dick. This is where I learned who Dick was. I loved Dick was inking notes. And I love Dick's inks. Dylan's layouts threw me off because they were so regimental. But I knew he was a hell of an artist. But it was a difference between DC and Marvel. 
So that was a big deal. Coming on the Justice League, you know you're going to be dealing with all these characters, at least eight different characters from eight different series. Some were doing well, some were not. And then therein was the problem because, um, let's say, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's books, uh, Don Heck was leaving. That's right. Don Heck was right drawing the books at the time. Don was going over to Wonder Woman, gladly going over to Wonder Woman because he was tired of drawing 10 characters at a time. And uh, so this is going to be a change of pace for him. And um, so whoever's going to come in on Justice League, the first thing you knew is that you're going to be drawing a ton of characters all the time. And so they, that's what they thought. Okay, let's get a young guy. Let's get a young guy. That's one, one reason. The other reason, and this is the one most people don't talk about, they forget, this was also the rumblings of the crisis. Crisis was starting to be talked about. Okay. Yeah. And the main reason one of those was because of the continuity of every book. Some books were doing better than others. Some books were on the verge of cancellation. Um, I don't know how many times Green Lantern been canceled. Um, there were certain books like Flash and Green Lantern where they were up and down, up and down, up and down. They were never huge. Um, Aquaman, yeah, there was no Aquaman book anymore. Aquaman but, seems like it's always getting yeah. restarted. Yeah, and he was, they were shoving him into adventure. So it's not like they weren't publishing him. It's just that he wasn't doing his own book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the day, it was like, every, that was part of the fun. Everybody had their own book. I think the only guy who didn't have his own book was Martian Manhunter. Right. But everybody had one. But now it was like, well, you can get a Martian Manhunter within the giant adventure book or whatever they want to shove them in. So you had that problem. Now that those books that did have those characters, they were starting to do their own continuity where they were changing things that, you couldn't bring into Justice League. Right. Like the big talk at that time, because by that time, Ernie Cologne was brought in as an editor. Because they actually put me under Ernie because Lynn was editing so many books. Um, he gave me the jump off, but he was backing off as editor. And so they were training Ernie to come in as an assistant. And Ernie got the, was the guy who was going to walk me through on Justice League. Um, as, as, and a few other books, as well as him drawing Amethyst. Um, but uh, um, anyway, Flash was a book he was editing, and they want to throw Flash in prison. So I remember that was like, why would you do that? And he's appearing in Justice League. That means you got to yank him from Justice League. <laughs> All of a sudden, Green Lantern is now off. He was going into a storyline where he was going to be leaving Earth for X amount of years. So he can't appear in it. Wonder Woman, Batman quits. <laughs> that was the other one. They put Batman yeah. in the yeah. So all of a sudden, the heavy hitter being pulled out of the book. So it's like, well, who you got left? You want a book with... And that was funny. I remember Lynn going, yeah, we got Elongated Man, who I liked over Plastic Man. Still yeah. do. I don't know why. <laughs> was annoying to me. Elongated Man is respect. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, Green Arrow. Oh, even Green Arrow. Mike Barr and uh, Mike... Um, not Mike Barr, Mike... Um, Mike Grell? Grell, thank you. Yeah. Mike Grell had put in the proposal for Longbow. I think he was doing it. Yep. So that changed that, because that went from, you know, that's now on a, in the deluxe books now, which were so-called uh, adult skew. So you can't have him, you know, killing rapists in his book and then coming back and fighting, you know, Mazo and Justin. <laughs> you know, that guy doesn't fly anymore. So that was where the problems were taking down, where editorial, everybody was fighting in there. It was different turfs. It came like Medici in Italy. You know, it's like different city states. I'm not going to let you touch this. I'm not going to let you touch that. Superman, same way. 
So the idea is, all right, um, you editors, you're going to take care of your books. You're going to take your characters. They're going to be out of justice. Now, the big fear is who we put in instead. And I remember, you know, now that was actually a year after I started Justice League. So at that point, I'm still doing the same lineup. Like I was telling you that um, Beastman trilogy was going to be my first book. By the time I was halfway penciling the first book, I was told to stop because Jerry had felt like he had burnt out. He had felt like he wasn't feeling it. I could tell because there were things in the script that didn't make sense. And that's when I started talking to Lynn and Lynn started grooming me to really be a storyteller of, well, what would you do? And I remember Jerry didn't like it, but Lynn loved it. <laughs> and, uh, and Lynn was like, I, I respected Jerry for eons. I mean, he was, the editor, you know, I loved his stuff. But the fan of me knew at that point he was writing stuff that was not exactly exciting. Right. Until he was phoning it in. And here I am now taking over a book with a guy who I idolized, but I can tell he was phoning it in. And so Lynn knew too. And Lynn was always good at knowing how to, because they were old friends, so he knew how to fire them up. So when Jerry was getting upset about me wanting to make changes on the Beastman book, Lynn was like, are you jealous? Are you afraid that what he's saying is wrong? Because he's right. So he would back me up, and then Jerry would come in and do the job as I would expect him to. But I also know he was not, he was just at that point where he needed change. He needed it all. So the idea came down quickly that we need to get a whole new writer, editor, uh, writer, artist team. On the book. And then that's when it became for a year revolving writers. Okay. I went through five, six different writers in that book. It had to be the one consistent thing. How frustrating was that? Very. Because whenever there was some people I really jailed, I, I, the first one I did after I put that down was the Carrie Burnett story. I think it was Burkett. I think it was the, um, I knew that the ending was um, they had, they wound up in Atlantis with some old wizard who was attacking them. He was using the, some spell. And um, I enjoyed it because it was, I got to really put my JLA thinking cap on and how to use people. That was fun. That was good. But he wasn't as they thought. I don't know if he was interested because by that time I can get straight answers from, from Lynn, but the more he was pulling back, the less I would get straight answers. And so um, Lynn would tell me, oh, he doesn't want to do the book, or I'm trying to talk him into it, but he's intimidated by it. The guy he really wanted to take over the book, who has shown the most, expressed the most uh, enthusiasm to take over the book, was J.M. DeMattis. Oh. But every time he was ready to do it, something would come up, and then he would feel, I'm not, that's not what I want to do yet. So he just kept backing off. And I was looking forward to working with him. We met five seconds in the hallway. And he was praising me, going, oh, I love the way you do faces. And, and to answer your question, Orin, this was good. This was the first time a writer was telling me what turned him on. Like he was saying, yeah, I love those close-ups and I like to play off. Yeah, I like to get those talking scenes and get moody. I needed to hear more of that. That was great. And some writers didn't. And like Mike Barr, you know, Mike would just write what he wrote. And I went, okay. You know, it was no. And if I asked him, he would have said, I, I remember asking him about one thing. He was, well, whatever you want to do. Well. That's great if I was a 10-year veteran. <laughs> now. So, but um, JM was telling me things about faces that I put in my memory bank of, okay, I'm going to try to do that more. 
because he noticed it and he liked it. But I remember doing it and going, I just threw in something. I didn't know it was going to work. Um, I wish I had more of that actually at the time, but uh, JM didn't didn't take the bait. He had other stuff he was working on, so um, he wrote one. I can't think of anybody else. Uh, Kurt Busick did one. Kurt Busick did the one that we all like. That was kind of probably the dumbest, but it was the best because it was dumb. And um, and then Dick just God bless him, go played it by coming in and inking it without me knowing. Because I was also going around multiple anchors. I had Romeo, who I liked Romeo. There were some things that Romeo would do that you know, I heard Perez complain about, which I agree. But Romeo would change the face. Uh, if you were cartoony, he would try to go real. Just little nitpicky, arty things that was like, oh. But he was consistent. That was the thing I liked about Romeo. And then all of a sudden, I would get a Pablo Marcos. And I respect I call him the maestro. He's great, but we just have two different styles. Yeah. And uh, so it was just hard because when I, I have a vision of what I like to look like, and then you'll give you someone who won't get there. So I went through that quite a bit. I even had Frank McLaughlin ink me once, and that was oh painful because he was a friend of Dick's. Yeah. And I knew of him and loved his own stuff. But over me, it was like, you know, I just cringed it. You know. Can you say anything about it? I mean, when you see stuff like that, can you be like, hey, you know, no offense, but this isn't working? Or do you have to sort because you were still pretty new there? I had to be like, okay, we'll just I, go with it. If I had Lynn, and this is why I missed him as an editor, mm-hmm. I could. Sure. And um, I remember being my, what I did, my, my, when I was waiting for JLA, they gave me a back issues of uh, Green Arrow to draw couple of those fill-ins, which was good practice. I got to see, I, I just saw them online recently and went, oh, they were ugly. And uh, my roommate at the time was Sean McManus and he inked them. And it was his way of getting into DC. And I can tell Sean and I, he made it look great, but it was just, we were just two different guys. And it was just funny because he's inking them and we are living in the same house. And I, you know, if I say, hey man, that's not the way, that's why I want to draw it. Okay. You know, um, um, but other people, that got to be touchy. Yeah. And uh, I remember that there's this Green Lantern I got that Todd Klein, the, uh, the letter, is one of his first writing jobs. He was like a fantasy Green Lantern. And I really was enjoying it. I loved it. And um, um, I remember it was a Friday evening. I turned in the job and Ernie Cullen was editing. And Ernie goes, well, tell me who you don't want to ink it, which was cool. It was great when they said, hey, you have somebody you want to ink it. Or that was it. He first asked, who do you want to get? I, like, I don't know anybody. I mean, it'd be great because Romeo was busy too. That was the thing about Romeo. I loved his work, but he was always all over the place. And Titans was really keeping him busy. And because um, I would have loved this would have been perfect for him. And um, Ernie went, well, we'll think of somebody, but tell me who you don't want. Because he was that kind of a provocateur type. He would push. And it was a particular anchor that I really could not stand his work to this day. And I won't mention his name, but he's not in the business anymore. But I, I did get a kind of, uh, I had to deal with him later when I was doing Spawn, where I got to kind of unload on him. <laughs> he really hadn't changed. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, your job isn't necessary in this business, in this side of town. But that was like a 20-year vengeance wait that happened <laughs> at that time. 
It was like, I just don't think we work well together. So Ernie wrote a note saying, don't send it to this guy. Come back on Tuesday and found out they sent it to this guy. And I remember going to Ernie and going, what, what happened? You know, because he was like a little sergeant boss. So I couldn't go, what the fuck happened? I just went, <laughs> you know, some shit happens. And that was that time. That was that reminder again, that shit, like my friend said, you know, stuff's going to happen. You're going to have no control over it. Just keep your eye out. Right. From there on, I had just, I can open my mouth and say it, but it, I also got it from the editors. It wasn't going to happen. You know, you're going to get whoever they want. <laughs> and sometimes you're lucky. Um, the one with music, I enjoyed because Kurt and I plotted that out, talked about it together. It was his plot, but we talked about the dynamics of it. And I actually went to Lynn and said, can we put Kurt as, can we make Kurt the regular writer in JLA? Because I really like working with the guy. And because he was a newcomer and didn't have any real, um, he was getting jobs, but he didn't have a selling book. Lynn said, I, we couldn't do that. We need somebody with a name. But I really liked working with him. And um, I did one with Joey Cavalieri. Loved Joey at the time. It's funny. Joey got to be a better writer later once he got out of D.C. Or he was at D.C. And we did this really god-awful thing with Lovecraft and JLA, which made no sense. And that was the one where they put Frank McLaughlin as the anchor. So I'm like, oh, I'm screwed either way. I got a crazy story. I got this really bad inking. And I'm trying to draw stuff that I don't even feel. You know? and, um, and I did a cover that Romeo inked and went, well, you know, if Romeo inked the book, I would be happier. But, yeah. So it was tough, man. It, it, it was, I, and again, aware that I was a newcomer. Every time I did complain, some people made it sound like, oh, you ungrateful little bastard, you know. Um, and I'm taller than ass, so they wouldn't call me a little guy. But you know, <laughs> I, can, I dwarfed over most of those clouds. But, uh, but uh, if it was me the way I am now, I would. They would have been dead. <laughs> but now, <laughs> me being humble and, and tall and kind of interior, my interior Chuck was still trying to find himself. Um, but um, there were some people who listened and went out of their way. And that's why when that music story came up and they couldn't find anybody to ink it, I don't know if Dick was being true, if he was bored or whatever, but him taking it was like, that's like you're the rookie and then the champion stallion comes in and goes, come on, kid, ride me and we'll get to the finish line. And to this day, I wish I kept those pages. I tear up when I think about them because they were, this was my, I mean, I looked at him and went, this is what I want. This is the way I've always envisioned me. This is the way I envisioned my JLA. I got to draw all the main characters with the exception of Superman uh, or Batman, but I got to draw the JLA in it. Actually, no, they are in it. Stupid me. Yeah, Jets, Superman's in it. Green Lantern's in it. Um, I have a friend who is a, um, um, I could call him a friend. He's going to become a really good friend. He's a New York Times writer who does a lot. George Gustines? Yeah, George. George has put that page up. Comes um, full circle. Oh yeah, that's his day. You know, oh, yeah. of love that has embraced me over because I remember the day I drew it and thought this kind of game was sweet. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I was really embracing my inner gayness to my gay friends and family, and you know, I Warren was, is texting him right now. 
Five. Say, he's like, you were just name dropped. I so George, you know, he is he is forever in my my favorite book. And um, that page, I wish I, I I don't know who owns that page. I wish I kept it because I remember that was fun for me because to draw them in civilian clothes so that they you knew who they were without the costume. That was um so I remember that's why Dick inked it. He said you had fun with that. And yeah, I got to, that was my stamp. Because I don't remember every time, I don't ever remember them, those three guys, the Pantheon, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Superman, being in civilian clothes. Right. So I really enjoyed that. So I don't care if it was gay, not gay, whatever. I It was love, you know. It was awesome, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Dollar Bin Bandits are Orrin Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.